It's also not yet Christmas. We've been given one last occasion to reflect uh, in advance on what Christmas means. And so in the past few weeks, we have looked at a couple of major Christmas themes, major Advent, Advent themes. We've looked at hope, we've looked at peace, we've looked at joy, and this morning I want to look at love. And so if you would, and if you have a Bible, if you'd open up to 1 John chapter 4. If you're in need of a Bible this morning, you'll find one sitting right in front of you in the back of the pews. 1 John is in the New Testament. You can use the index to find it pretty quickly. Most of the passages we've looked at for this Advent season have been passages in the Old Testament, well before the occasion that we celebrate in Christmas, looking forward. This passage, though, comes from John the Apostle, one of Jesus' disciples, quite far after what we celebrate in Christmas, Um, quite far later after Jesus' life his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. At this point, John's title for himself is John the Elder, John the Old. And so this is late in his life, reflecting back. But I wanted to turn to this passage um, because this explains the reason for Christmas. John, reflecting back, roots what we celebrate in Christmas, the coming of Christ, in the why. And so read with me in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Let's pray. Father, as we reflect on your love this morning, I pray that it would not be merely an exercise of our imaginations or uh, a working um, that is sterile and theoretical, Lord, but that it would be experiential, that we would taste and see your love this morning and that that love would transform us. I pray that you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. John's letter is full of exhortations. In fact, this whole letter is really just two things. It's exhortations, here's what you should do, and litmus tests. Here's how you'll truly know if you're a Christian. And they're woven, interwoven, in between one another. And so he starts this passage in something that he's already said a couple of times in this letter. Look again at verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. Now, that's more than an exhortation because of his address at the beginning. Notice how he begins it. Beloved, let us love one another. That's essential. That's really the heart of everything I have to say this morning. 
It's too easy for us to look even at at Christmas and know that love plays a part. To recognize um, that at its best, at its core, our Christmas celebration should be a celebration of love. That it's a regathering of family, that it's an expression of our care and our pleasure we take in others. We give gifts because we love the people we give them to. Love underlies everything we do uh, at Christmas. But if we just tried to sum up the Christian religion even with love one another, we would be saying something significant, but it would fall short of what Christianity is. But let's just reflect on let us love one another and what that looked like according to the New Testament. What did love in the early church look like in the days of John, the people he's addressing, the life that John lived? What did it look like when he says, love one another? It was pretty radical. It was a love that reached into its wallet, liquidated its accounts, sold off its investments to take care of those in the church that were in need. It was a love that saw long-standing racial tension resolved and saw Jews and Gentiles arm in arm as one people. It was a love, and you have to reflect on this, it was a love where sometimes you would find yourself in the same room with the person you said you would never speak to anymore and there was forgiveness. It was a love that made the whole onlooking world scratch their heads and go, how can this be? And so love is an essential part of the Christian religion, but love one another is not the whole story. We have to begin with that little word, beloved. The fact that we love is radical, it's a calling, it's a requirement for Christians, but the why of our love is the essence of Christmas. Beloved. Now, we could understand if John was just saying that to the church that he pastors. I understand that because I have that heart. I don't always live up to it, I don't always keep it in mind. But I can say with confidence and a full heart this morning to you guys, beloved. But I think because of what follows, John is saying something more significant here. It's not merely beloved by me. It's not merely a father addressing his family. It is John speaking as the apostle of Jesus Christ to a particular people, those who have entered into the church and referring to them as God's beloved. Notice what he says here, beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. What does he do here? He says that the source of love, the origin of love, is God himself. In other words, he calls us to love because love is one of God's greatest gifts. It's one of the best things he's given us. All the way back in the book of Genesis, It says that when God created us, uniquely of all the creation, he created us in his image. And one of the things that that idea seems to entail is that we were created for love, to love and be loved, for relationship. And so we have that. And I think we all understand what an incredible gift love is. Love takes a life and makes it meaningful. 
Love can eradicate difficulties in life and make them make our mountains molehills. Love is something that we can devote our lives to and never regret. And John says here that we have the opportunity to love. We find love in our life. Every expression of love we find in the world takes its roots, takes its source from God. Love is from God. Then he goes on, he says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, you have to recognize here that John is speaking in words that are relatively broad and abstract, but he's using them in very specific ways. And so when he makes here love the litmus test of those who are born of God and know God, he's not saying anyone who's ever loved is God's child. Anyone who's ever loved clearly knows who God is. Instead, he's saying anyone who truly knows God and is born of God will be a lover. Okay? And I want you to notice here that what he says here when he says uh, whoever loves, the idea here and the way it's put in the Greek, the way it's parsed, is, is one of continuous, of constant. It's a defining characteristic. It's a trait. It's not an occasional thing. It's not a happening. It's a practice. And what he's pointing out here is that you cannot truly know the God who is the giver of love and not be a lover yourself. That the beloved will love one another. In other words, he says here that this love, as we'll see in a second, that comes from God is inherently transformative. It does something. It changes us. And so notice what he says next in verse 8. He says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Now, it's significant when he says that God is the source of all love, but here he goes beyond that. When he says that God is love, he is defining God's character. In other words, love is not something God has in reserves and hands out like Santa's bag full of presents. God is love. It's who he is. It's of his character. In fact, we have to take this aspect here and read it back into beloved. You see, the Christmas story is ultimately a story of love, but a lot of times we misunderstand that love's origin. Why did Jesus come? Well, he came, as the Bible says over and over, to die. He came to do something. As we'll see in verse 10, he came to be the propitiation for our sins. But that still doesn't answer the question, why? Why did Jesus come? Well, because of love. But why was there love? When we read in John 3.16, words also written by this same person, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What's the reason for that love? The reason, John says here profoundly, is found not in us as the beloved, but in God the lover. In other words, we cannot understand the coming of Christ, the Christian religion, the love that we are supposed to show until we understand that that love is undeserved. That the reason God loved the world is not because the world is lovely. 
That the reason God loved the world is not because how could he not? In fact, the profoundness of the story in Christmas, and it runs all through the Christmas story. John puts it this way in the intro to his gospel. He says, all of creation understood the creator was coming in Jesus Christ, but his own people knew him not. When you look at that story and you say, where is the Jews anticipating their Messiah? Where is the celebration? What do you encounter? Shepherds, who are like the rejects of society, society, foreigners, who know the God of Israel's plans better than Israel itself. Innkeepers who go, yeah, there's no room here for you. And does it change in Jesus' life? No, he's constantly rejected, plotted against, misunderstood, and ultimately crucified on a false trial. You see, the beauty of God's love is that it is unassailable because it is a part of his character and not our performance. The beauty of God's love is that it doesn't have to be earned because that is who God is. The Christmas story originates in the heart of God and not in the needs of men. And it's essential to understand that this morning. And here's the reason. Take it all the way to the practical. As you gather tomorrow morning with family, there are places where love is easy and there are places where love is hard. There are places where it's natural and it flows without thought. It's almost instinctual. It's how could you not because those people are so easy to love. But what about the ones that aren't? You see, the love that God showed us in this stems solely and completely from him. And it's not necessarily justified. It's not necessarily earned or deserved. In fact, it is profoundly different than that. God is love. Now we have to be careful with that phrase because it's so profound. Many people say easily, I believe in a God of love. Many people say, I believe that God is love, and then they use that to narrow down who God could possibly be. They take their personal definition of love, and that becomes the keyhole through which they cram their concept of God. But I want you to notice that although God's love here is unconditional, it's not shapeable. It's not ambiguous. It's not uh, undefined. Notice what he says in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. He says here that the coming of Christ, the birth of Jesus in the manger and his death on the cross, that that makes God's love manifest. It shows us Not only that God loves us, but it also shows us what love is. In fact, listen just a chapter earlier in John chapter 3, verse 16. He takes it even further. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and so we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. He gives here a definition for love. By this we understand love. 
By this, we define love. If you open the Christian dictionary to the word love, you see the cross of Christ. You see, not only does God's love stem from God, but it's shaped by who God is. And this is essential because it means it means that sometimes we love people in ways that they don't feel loved. Now, I'll be the first to admit that love should always be informed or shaped by the person you're giving love to. That's why you didn't buy the same Christmas present to everyone on your list, right? And that's clearly an aspect of God's character. Love is, in a sense, custom fit, but it's not a blank check. It's so easy for us in the hardships we endure in our life, in the struggles we have, to say, God, if you really loved me, things would be different. And we have both in the cross of Christ a counterpoint to that and we have a definition and we have some shaping. First, a counterpoint. John doesn't say here, by this God made his love manifest in giving you the job that you wanted, in protecting your family in your health. In fact, he doesn't look at anything in your everyday life at all. He looks back in the past and he, wants, he says, you want to know God's love for you? Read Matthew, read Mark, read, read Luke, read John. This is how God's love is made unassailably assailably manifest in the life of Jesus Christ. But it's more than a counterpoint. It's also a definition. I want you to notice something super weird that John says, and then we'll return to verse, 10, or to verse 9. But in 10, he says, In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, what he says here is that God's love directly dealt with us as sinners. And I think that's one of the mistakes we make about love. We say, love is blind. Love looks the other way and ignores the sins of others. It doesn't see their faults. That is not God's love. God's love was fully and completely aware of us as sinners and responded in that way. Now that word propitiation is a heavy one. You want to know how the Greeks used it in the days of John the Apostle? They used it in their religion to talk about the angry gods and how they were appeased so that they wouldn't pour out their wrath on you. A propitiation was a sacrifice that you made to get the gods off your back. And John here looks at the life of Jesus and he says, that's what Jesus was. Now there's a lot more informing this word than just the Greeks, but he chooses this word and it is significant and it gives me a chance to point something out that love and anger are not necessarily incompatible. And that can make us uncomfortable because we mistake anger for hatred, but we are always angry because we love. We are always angry because we love. We may be angry at them because we love the other, but love is the origin of anger, and the honest truth is, a lot of times, those of you who are parents understand, your anger stems directly from your love against the one who angers you. It's because you care about them so much that it matters. 
God is not indifferent to our sins because he loves us. Just put this all together. Love is part of God's character. Love sent Jesus, and Jesus became the propitiation, the appeasement of God's wrath. That defines God's love. And so, yes, it's right. The love we're talking about here sees people as sinners and then takes those sins upon their shoulders. Remember here that when we talk about Jesus being the sacrifice, in fact, just think of it this way. The Bible declares that God loves fully and completely and perfectly Jesus himself. And that makes sense. The Father loves the Son. And if it said here that the Father had given the whole world to the Son, that would make perfect sense. But what John says is so much more significant. He says, the Father gave the Son to the world. And so it can be hard to understand. We understand Jesus' sacrifice and we go, wait a minute. How can God treat Jesus so poorly and that be loving on our behalf? And you have to remember that this is God taking the punishment upon himself. This is one of the difficulties of understanding the Trinity. In Acts chapter 20, it says that God redeemed us with his own blood. But that's what love does. Love takes the consequence of sin on its own shoulders for the sake of relationship. Love continues unfading, unfinished, despite how it's treated. But we cannot get away from the fact here that the most loving thing God did involved the punishing of sin. But he took that punishment upon his own shoulders. Now, with that in mind, hear again what John says in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. We get this. We understand that when somebody pushes you out of the way of a moving vehicle and gives up their life for you, that is a definitive act of love. That's the love that we're talking about. That's the love that leads to Christmas. But I want you to notice here that it's not merely forgiveness. It's not just so that we wouldn't die. It's so that we might live. And that's something even greater and more profound. You see, Christmas is not just about eradicating our debts and granting us forgiveness and saving us from hell. It's about inviting us into life. Jesus put it this way in John's Gospel, I came so that people might have life and have it abundantly. In fact, in that same Gospel, Jesus says this, This is eternal life that you might know the Father and the Son whom he has sent. You see, God is not only love, God is life. And relationship with him is life-giving. It's a fountain, it flows. That's why those who are born of God love. Because they're connected with love and it flows through them. What we are talking about when we talk about Christmas is love 
But let's get it straight. Listen again to the beginning of verse 10. In this is love, not that we've loved God. He's not saying here that our love of God isn't, is irrelevant or that it doesn't matter or it's untrue. What he's saying instead is don't start in the wrong place. When we deal with love, when we deal with life, when we deal with Christmas and we start with us, it's like holding a telescope backwards. It makes the, the thing we're looking at way too small. When we hold a telescope right, Rightly, it takes something big and helps us to see how big it really is, right? Your life life will never, ever, ever, ever be defined by the love you have for God. It won't even be defined by the love you have for one another. It has already irrevocably been stamped with the love of God. The love that is part of his character, that is essential to him, that is demonstrated in the sending of his son and the dying on the cross to be the propitiation for our sins so that we might have life. If you hold on to that this Christmas, it will change your Christmas. Not only that, but if you hold on to this on Tuesday when you go back to work, it will change your work day. I'll give you just a few examples as we close. The honest truth is many of us struggle with the phrase beloved. If we write it on a name tag and try and stick it to ourselves, it just seems to roll up and fall off. We have so many other identities filled with shame or performance that take the place of that. But if you can hold before you the reality that your life is shaped by the love of God that sent Jesus Christ... You will live as someone who is loved, not because you've earned it, not because you're so great, but because God's so great, and that changes the way you live your life. But here's another thing. If you're in touch with this love, if you can hold it before your face, if you truly understand it, if you digest it and it becomes part of you, it will change how you treat other people. Now, John's focus is how we treat other Christians. When he says, let us love one another here, he's, the one another is a narrow scope. It's those who know God. But you only have to keep reading in 1 John or the rest of the New Testament to see that that love goes even further than that. That's why Jesus could say, love your enemies. Right? He, he runs it all the way down the line. But nonetheless... When we are the recipients of undeserved, sacrificial love, we become givers of undeserved, sacrificial love. And there's a final way that I want to draw your attention to this morning. If God is love, and if he loved you like this, then you're going to want to enter in. You're going to want to know that God in a deeper way. You're going to want to spend time with him in prayer. You're going to want to know what he said in his word. You're going to shape your life in the shape of his loving commands and fatherly warnings. See, the truth is, some of us right now are are living our lives in ways that directly go against the grain of God's will. 
And it's for a very simple reason. It's because we think we know better, that we have our best interest in mind. The cross shatters that possibility. It demonstrates that God's decisions and commands are trustworthy. Because even while we were rebelliously breaking them, even at our worst, he pursued our best. And he didn't just go, you know what, let me say the instructions again and let me make the warnings stronger and hotter and let me do everything I can to help you understand so you can make a reasonable and rational choice. No, he did something about it. He did what we could not do when we were not asking and invited us in and just said, all is forgiven. And so if we understand God's love, we will follow Christ more closely. The purpose of Advent, once again, is preparation. Tomorrow is Christmas, and it will come and it will go quickly, and it will mean something. And holidays get hijacked. They get hijacked by family politics. They get hijacked by expectations. They get hijacked by a culture that learns ways to benefit and profit from them. And we are prone to all of that tomorrow. So we've spent the last four weeks preparing as a church so that Christmas means what Christmas means. So as we finish our service, as we sing together, let the songs that we sing not only come out of your mouth, but allow them to shape your heart. Some of you know what you're in for tomorrow. It doesn't matter if you're your greatest enemy and you know what's going to happen as you completely lose your mind tomorrow or if you're worried about a particular relationship you're going to enter in, or you recognize the fact that as much as you would desire for your kids to believe that you are their savior as evidenced by the perfect gift tomorrow, you're probably going to be let down, right? You're not necessarily going to get the response, the Nintendo 64 scream that we all long for to give our kids. But that's not where the heart of Christmas is. And the true meaning of Christmas is not threatened. I don't care if there's a war on Christmas because the war is over. And the meaning cannot be stolen. It cannot be removed. It cannot be deleted. No amount of an army of Scrooges can change the fact that God's love was made manifest. Let's pray. Father, help us to get it right. Help us to see with clear vision your love as was demonstrated and shaped by the cross of Christ. Help us to surrender our dire need to prove ourselves to you and to others and to allow ourselves to be loved, to receive the greatest and free gift of salvation. 
Help us to unlock every closed door in our heart, every place where we won't allow your love to flood in, every little standoff that we're maintaining against our best interest. And I pray, Lord, that we would love one another, that we would love our families as we gather tomorrow, that we would love the strangers we encounter with. I pray that your love would flow in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we respond this morning, we'll move communion over. And if you're a Christian, you're welcome to come forward at any time and partake of it. But remember that this is us tangibly telling the story of Christmas, which doesn't end on December 25th or wherever the 12th day of Christmas is. It ends with Easter. It ends with a resurrection and a body that was broken for us and a blood that was shed with us so that we could experience and be shaped by the love of God.